So, welcome back, everybody, to Safe Space, the podcast you might have long forgotten about. We are actually in season two. Um, we had a an extended summer break, which started in June, should have ended in September, and now it's just the end of November. So, we just managed before Christmas. It's actually episode nine now. So we are back together. It's me, Robert, and Davide. And we can barely remember what we talked about last time. We can barely remember what we talked about yesterday, yes. let alone before the summer. Maybe you could help us, Robert, understanding how a summer break looks like for you. Well, actually, the word. To actually use the word summer and break in one sentence makes no sense at all to me. Because um, well, you're a seasonal worker. She's <laughs> definitely a seasonal worker. We're here in a retreat center, and in the summer is when all the people come to kind of do well, something Buddhist related. Yep, they have time, so they take uh, kind of. Uh, They come for all kind of. Some ways, people stay yeah. for a week, or some people stay a for week, a month. For a month, for two months, so. In the end, we had a three-month program here from end of June until wow. end of September. And yeah, there's somehow all these people here, up to 1,100 people, they create a lot of work. And there's only so much we can get away by telling them about learning how not to do things. At some point, we have to find out things for them to be busy. Yeah. This is not a Zen center. That's what I'm saying. They don't just sit in front of a white wall. <laughs> no, but also they have to eat. That's right. And they have to clean the toilets. That's right. Because they also use the toilets. That's why. And yeah, and then they have to kind of, they don't live all here. So they have cars. So they have organized parking and shuttle transports and meals. And and they may appreciate uh, like learning about Buddhist stuff. So we need to make sure that's, yeah, that's stuff to learn. Yeah, sometimes. And then, you know, we get wonderful visits from different type of teacher, mostly kind of the Tibetan Buddhist. And that's also kind of, everybody enjoys that. Yes. And then we have a certain habit of all of a sudden extending the program. That's right. We like that. <laughs> it's never enough. Yes, it's never enough. So we had an, an extra installment in October, continuation of the summer. That's where true. Where we actually did what Tibetan Buddhists would call a practice retreat. So that was actually just practicing for 10 days. We know how many monks coming from India? Had like 20? 33 yeah. monks. It was amazing. It was and for more than a week? It was 10 days. 10 days it is like... Well, actually, in total, nine days. And actually what they count is like if the beginning day, which is not a full day of practice, okay. then there's seven days full day practice, day and night actually. There's this wonderful thing the that they do in the, in the night where they, you know, for each one of these kind of type of practices, there's a specific mantra which is kind of related to the practice you do. And they keep a kind of a mantra rota 24, for 24 hours. So during the night, if I understand it right, a group of monks, but also with some help from some of us, actually they stay in the temple and they keep meditating and doing this mantra, right? Yes, absolutely. And that it never is, stops. It never that's the idea, it never stops. And the atmosphere, look, I am I wasn't involved directly and I wasn't definitely not staying up all night to doing it. But I happened to kind of walk by the temple in the evening 
and it's a beautiful atmosphere. You, there's a you know this small group of people all very cozily together, keeping this mantra going, and it seems like uh, I was looking on the next day. There was like people could sign off to be part of of the of the mantra road, as we call it, and uh, people were not running away from it. They actually seemed to like it. No, it, not at all. I mean. You kind of sign up for a slot, which is two or three hours long. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the most problems finding people from the midnight to two in the morning. Shift. That's a tough one. That's the toughest one. It's neither late evening nor yeah. early mer- morning. Yeah, <laughs> that's I true. prefer the kind of three o'clock in the morning. You shift. just get up early and do yes. it. Yeah. No, that was that was wonderful. I mean, and definitely kind of really continuous practice happening, quite effective. Nice. And we had people coming for that too, no? Like we have like oh yes, we had a lot of people. people. We had four hundred, four hundred people. Wow. Yes. So it has been a full, let's say, summer and half of the fall. Summer half of the fall has been very busy, yeah. Mm. And now, basically, as the temperatures drop below zero, the program <laughs> finally ends because <laughs> La Bling, our retreat center here, is basically functioning outdoors. There is. Virtually nothing you can do in the winter because, I mean, it's all... Every time you have to change location, if you go from the temple to the dining hall or to the toilets, you always have to go outdoors. So That's a, like our office where we work is is literally like a wooden, a big, nice wooden cabin. And then if you want to go to the toilet or you want to go to eat or you talk to somebody who works in another part of the, of the yes. environment here, you walk uh, outdoor, which it is was, great. Yeah. You get fresh it's, air all it, the time. You get fresh air all the time. You also get fresh rain all the time. <laughs> fresh snow from time to time. <clears throat> but lots of fresh air, that's for sure, yeah. Well, that means that we finally have time to do the podcast. Yes. Well, of course, now we have our winter job to do, which is kind of managing all the other work. But but that's more kind it, of it schedulable. Bit, it's a little bit easier, yeah, more schedulable. So we can talk to each other again. I mean, in a way, we, we we do talk to each other also throughout the summer. We're we don't even a microphone in front of we us. We're definitely not in <laughs> silence. <laughs> but we don't make much sense, really. <laughs> All right. So you wanted to talk about? Yes, I was actually coming back to the last podcast, which the only thing I remembered, we wanted to do one more podcast before the before summer the, break, yeah, which we didn't manage. And one of the things I wanted to say back then was, in the last episode of this podcast, I mentioned Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was one of the one of the first really great Tibetan teachers who came to the West and established Tibetan Buddhism in the West. Yeah, he was one of the first that not only came to the West but really took yeah. the West seriously, I would say, and thought how to transmit you know, the wisdom and knowledge of Tibetan Buddhism to Westerners because other lamas more senior than him did visit the West before and after and during his time, but they were more like, they literally visited the West. He actually moved to the West. Yeah, he moved to the West and he really tried to establish his lineage in the West. That's right. And he tried to understand Western culture and he actually became also like, he fell in love with some aspect of Western culture, poetry, the English language, Absolutely. He was quite a connoisseur, actually. Yeah. He actually, he did elocution les- lessons that? for people like me who don't know how to speak. <laughs> <clears throat> so 
So yeah, I mentioned Trungpa Rinpoche and there were, he actually established his centers extremely quickly mm. because he actually passed away very young. So he, he had a very short time and he did an enormous amount of, mm. of work in that period. And I mentioned that he had some peculiarities. Um, he was drunk quite a lot. Mm. And he also, he was definitely fascinated by kind of organized movements of animals and people and military movements in particular, kind of mm -hmm. marching um, uniforms. Yeah, very specific style of doing things that yes. included uh, uh, military rehearsals. Yeah, they had kind of, yeah, marching exercises and um, they had his own kind of yeah paramilitary group i mean not they were not armed for, really they just did actually did, were they i don't armed? think they had arms but they, they did like a, was like more play the, yeah. the the yeah player or like the discipline around but it. it's all about the discipline yeah and the kind of mm. group formation and functioning in the group mm. so i mentioned all of that and i said well if i had seen trunkpa as my first If, if, if he would have been the first Tibetan teacher I saw, I would have just turned around and run away. You're not a, a fan of the military mentality, I understand that. I'm definitely not a fan of the military. I mean, when I was in high school and early university years, I really didn't like the military. Mm. Did you have to do? Something? I had to do the, uh, well, in Austria, they have the compulsory, compulsory military service. Yes. But you had the choice to instead of doing the military service, to have some kind of civil service. Just duty. like in Italy. Basically, yeah. <clears throat> And so at, at the age of 17, every young male Austrian, only the male ones, that's right. they have to go for a check-in at the military oh. station. And, And there's, also, there's also a psycho test. So oh, they oh. kind of do some kind of psych evaluation. And there are some intelligence tests. So what I did, I went there and for each intelligence, for each question, I figured out the answer and then I ticked exactly the wrong answer. That was like, that <laughs> is so intelligent, they can even, they didn't know you were a genius, basically. And you, you, you resulted to be basically subnormal. Yeah, I, I found it really fun. And then I had like this questionnaire with the kind of few psych questions and you had to kind of basically tick all the, yes, if you yes. always tick the boxes on the left, it was fine. And it was not always yes. That yes the one on the no. left are the good ones. Yeah, the left ones are the good ones. And the, if you ticked one on the right, then you came to see a psychologist. I did the same thing. I had, I had to see the psychologist too. Yeah, me too, of course. I you know why the they right. put it to the left? Because they are... They it's are, easier for people to grade afterwards. They didn't have I, computers. They had to look at this thing. That's right. And then they put it, the, like, they put it horizontally instead of vertically. And then you have a graph. Yeah. And if there's a spike, because you put, <laughs> if you connect the dots, and I had a spike and I remember, I said, I like flowers. One of the questions is, do you like flowers? And that's the, was the question that got me in trouble. I don't remember which question I ticked with the wrong answer, obviously. So I also got to see a psychologist, but they still didn't exclude me from the military service. You were not neither stupid enough nor crazy enough. No way. <clears throat> So actually, I ended up then, um, back then, I could actually just say, I'm going to do a military service after I have done my academic studies at university. That's right. 
So I told them that. And then once I finished my studies, I emigrated. I did the same. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, I immigrated to Germany. And so that's how I didn't have to do yeah, my... So I didn't do any military. You went to the Spain or the US? Where did you go first? I went to the... Well, or I did South the whole kind of thing. But in the end, I ended up in the US. Okay. Yeah. Similar story. So, <clears throat> so anyway, this all just to kind of point out the fact that I was not really a big fan of military organization. So... And I also wasn't a big fan of heavy drinking. That's untypical for an Austrian. Yes. <clears throat> so, but basically the point I wanted to make is, it's not like I had such huge concepts about these things, you know, what's good, what's bad, mm. you know, kind of military, that's so bad. And alcohol, kind of misuse of alcohol, it's also terrible, you know, so. Chögen Trumpering Pachi would have totally rubbed me the wrong way. Mm. But what people might, uh, all these three people who listen to this probably, <laughs> might have, I was not criticizing Trungpa Rinpoche. That was not the point. Because he knew exactly what he was doing. And he was actually using all these kind of things to, to train his students. So what type of training is that? In what are, is one trained by those means, generally? What do you think? Well, I think the biggest thing he was really trying is trying to break the, his his students' concepts. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> just like me had a very strong, just like I had a very strong opinion about what's right or wrong, I would think his American students definitely had a big mm -hmm. opinion as well of what's right or wrong. And that was just post-hippie area error mm -hmm. that he did it so i would think none of his students were really big fan of, of the military oh my god we <laughs> <laughs> were all run away from any form of any militarism. form of kind of yeah group exercises and stuff so yeah and i was just thinking kind of reflecting more about this thing about that actually this strong And we might now, we might think this is just, it's not, we're not judging things, you know, this is just like a moral obligation to kind of think that war is bad and as a result, obviously, military has to be bad and so on, you know. So we, we tend to kind of mask our judgments or concepts. Very often we mask them as kind of moral, um, how would you say? imperatives so it's not like this is my opinion but it's like we morally base that or kind of base our judgment on some kind of moral foundation perceived moral foundation and yeah i mean one why is that a limit why is that a problem or to to what is that a problem what does it impede Well, as far as I understand, but of course, what do I know? In Buddhism, one of the key things is to actually dissolve your concepts about reality. Because, well, the Matemika philosophy in Buddhism, it in the end, it picks about all kinds of concepts you can have about reality and shows you that actually <clears throat> how things really are, that's actually beyond concepts. 
So we think that. But you're the shadow guy, so you know all about. Yeah, but I, I was just thinking that I think that all those Majamika philosophies is just a way to illuminate a much more general truth, and and that's not the only way to get there, right? You know, as as you were talking about Chogantrungkrim, which maybe was choosing more practical, almost practical humor, practical jokes on a grand scale to show the same, to kind of um, help people being less uh, rigid with their concepts. Because I think that the fundamental idea behind it, and I think it's a great hope, is that there's a way to adhere to reality or to kind of get in contact with reality that is much more in accordance with the way things are and is not filtered by or interpreted by or by means of the concepts. And, and because if you were to say, okay, reality is non-conceptual, okay, of course, you know, the stone doesn't have a mind, right? Uh, you know, reality is the way it is. It doesn't think about itself. But you say, yes, but is, that's the only way we can uh, interpret, understand, and be in contact with reality. Then all of this would make no sense. If there was no hope, if we didn't think that the mind, the human mind, can actually grasp things that are beyond the concepts, then what is the point about talking about non-conceptual anything it's like yeah it's a theory that that is nice to hear but i think the idea behind is that we do have that capacity and it's all question of uh, discovering that we can uh, in inverted common understand reality yeah or perceive, without or, or perceive, perceive or, that we perceive yeah. or i think it's like almost trying to find a word that's used neither perceive nor nah, it's like kind of getting in contact with reality that is not by means of intellects intellectual thinking and concepts and the under, the idea behind it that is that is a true way of then seeing reality or kind of having uh, a direct yeah maybe perception or contact with reality and you know philosophy only helps you to use concepts to show that your concepts don't work yeah that's exactly what it's like Madhimika does that's what Madhimika <clears throat> does and but there are other approaches like more uh, because if we are if we admit or if we accept that we have the innate potential to be able to see reality for what it is meaning there's a capacity of mind that is beyond the intellect that can be engaged with and can be made manifest there's not only one way to get there through philosophy and, and you know breaking down concept through other concepts there are different other ways and I think a little bit this kind of more charismatic and kind of sometimes puzzling aspects of some of these lamas, like for example, uh, Chogyam Trungpa, are ways to reach the same the same means in a different way. Because I think for uh, even, I think sometimes it's a, isn't it a little bit, wow, how can you put on the same, I mean the Dalai Lama and Chogyam Trungpa, they're both Tibetan lamas. And as far as I understand, as far as I ju- can judge, I see them with, with kind of a sort of equanimity, I see them both as great lamas, but they're so different, right? Yes, that's, yeah, I mean, that is the kind of, that's the kind of the system also that you need very different teachers for different people. And Amazing, huh? In the end, they teach the same but you need different approaches sometimes. And maybe that's why it's so helpful sometimes to hold back on the judgments because maybe that's not the, uh, you know, it's so, I really find it more and more that the, 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 the first thing that you kind of have to 
grapple with when you start on some form of spiritual path is to kind of go easy on your own preconcept view. Because I guess the fundamental idea is that if you already knew the solution to the problem and, and knew the problem and knew where you stand relative to the objective that you have, then you don't need a path, you don't need a master, you don't need anything. So you, you're already right. But sometimes we come in and say with some wish, maybe you know, happiness, freedom, enlightenment, call it what you want, and a lot of baggage connected to it. And you, you hope you can start getting there. Okay, tell me how to get there. But then first is... Yeah, actually, the, the baggage thing is interesting because we do our, identify ourselves so much with the baggage. So it's actually quite hard to let go of the baggage. And even if the baggage is not wrong, but it's still this kind of strong attachment to it. It's quite heavy. It's quite heavy. And there is a lot of cultural also preconceived ideas oh, yeah. that we have and there's also historic ideas we have and I mean there's also things like connotations which we don't think about you know that if I say if you hear a certain word you immediately kind of That's connect true. with it a whole string of ideas and images you have in your mind and history and so on and we're so western centric <clears> and so I, I find more and more with time when you are Especially when you interact with maybe Eastern, like uh, Tibetans or Indian people from, from from other country, you find how much we are used to consider the way we see things as almost the the reference. Like that's objective, and then they are strange. You know what I mean? Yes. Of and then yeah. and then you realize, but I think or I interpret things in a certain way because of very specific historical reason that in my culture has been developed in this way and some of them I can even rejoice in says isn't it great that these days I am a little bit less I don't know racist than I would have been maybe a hundred years ago they're great but that's there's a natural evolution in that and and in other area I might be as precon I have so many preconcepts that from another point of view or from another cultural point of view would be just as bad as being racist but I don't see them because I'm so embedded in, in Western culture that I, I consider them to be, you know, objective reality. I think you said something before that struck me like that we have this tendency of, uh, you know, uh, to take some concept or some idea that we find really, really valid and we really, really believe in it and it's great. But then we put it out of our subjective thinking and put it into a box and we call it something like morality or right or just and and because of that we basically deny any responsibility and we decide then that anybody that doesn't adhere to those ideals is plainly wrong and we might even go further on that down that that road and decide that at some point we need to do something about yeah and let's start the holy war that's where the holy war starts right and i it's funny because a few hours ago i found myself talking to somebody and talking about the fact that in some culture uh, you know we we kind of take stock of our instead of or rather rather than take stock of our weaknesses sometimes we make the object of our or something they make us feel weak we depict it as something evil and and in our in that culture that object becomes bad but actually all it is is something that we don't know how to deal with yes 
Uh, there are tons of yeah. cultures that treat women in a horrible way. And if you really analyze them, it's all about men not being able to deal with the fact that, yes, they are attracted to women as they feel very uh, powerless when they feel that they're losing control because they're attracted yeah. to women. And instead of recognizing that and say like, oh, yeah, maybe there's something I can do with myself to improve that, they create a whole culture around and put them all kind of, you know, uh, constraint on, on this other gender based on the fact that they can do it because they're physically stronger. So that's the opportunity. Yeah, and actually brings that is brings us back to this other point, which I was kind of dying to mention about judgments and concepts. <clears throat> because if you actually look at the teachings of Buddha, I mean, it's, all, it's always essentialized as the core of the teachings of the Buddha is to tame your own mind. And actually what happens is when you have a concept or a judgment, you don't allow yourself to actually look at yourself. You, you kind of miss that opportunity mm. to kind of say, I'm seeing something like that. What does it do to me? How mm. do I react? What does my mind do mm. when I see something like that? Mm. So by judging or kind of having a concept, you instantly you don't do this thing of kind of coming back. What is my mind doing? Is my, is there a mind in the first place? What is it doing? What is this whole kind of what's mm. happening there? What kind of this concept? And then that reaction and based on that reaction, something else comes and all of these things. So we say we're just judging somebody or we're just saying, oh, it's right or wrong. But, but actually, actually there's a, a whole string of things, yeah. string of events going on in your mind. And your job as a Buddhist practitioner is actually looking at your mind and trying to understand your mind or working with your mind. And by just putting your whole attention outside and just putting a label, we're back mm. to the labels, you kind of completely miss that opportunity mm. to recognize what's going on. That's quite a, can be quite radical to approach terms of changing it from an outward facing into a more uh, contemplative almost like observing yes and sometimes a bit scary right because you might feel that you lose yeah you were saying we lose the opportunity to see what's going on in us but maybe we feel oh but then we lose the opportunity to do something in the world or defend ourselves or even more defend others because righteousness is always about very often about others and yeah, but, but even if it's a situation where kind of a compassionate action is called for for example your action might still be much more powerful when you have first actually mm. looked at your mind and you really kind of you come back to actually a position of strength where you kind of feel well in yourself and you know what's going on and you act from that space rather than kind of from a judgmental like, mm. oh, I really have to, uh, which kind of then help this person, which could easily kind of turn into pity, a kind of reaction yeah. based on pity or something else. It's funny, just a few hours ago, somebody was mentioning something very similar. That's funny, it keeps happening. Interesting. They were telling that uh, they used to have you know, their father comes from, has a quite different uh, Weltanschauung, like view of the world than they have. They would describe their father being a little bit, you know, uh, uh, you know, borderline 
kind of racist and conservative and stuff like that. Um, and uh, this person who was talking to me is actually very liberal and, and so on. And they found it very, very tough, you know, to know that your dad is actually sometimes embodying almost this thing that you consider to be negative. And um, they found that the, that recently they found a way to talk to them in a way that was, they didn't react emotionally. Basically, they've done the job of looking at their own reaction. And they expressed very clearly, but in a non threatening and a non-emotional way the fact that they found what they were saying very unhelpful and they were amazed by the, re the by the reaction the result when the father said you know what you're right i shouldn't generalize this way but they know that when they used to do it in the past and it was based on i can't hear my father talking like that again just and they would like lash out the result would be uh, pretty much different and then it became a confrontation so this was just an example of just i heard a few hours ago yeah. about the truth of the fact that if if you know yourself, you know what's going on and act out of it, you actually have more chances to achieve what you wanted to achieve anyway. Yeah, and also accept your own. I mean, there's a, there is this kind of thing of being aware of what's happening and also some kind of gentle acceptance, hmm. not also rejecting your own thing. I mean, if you have a problem with somebody and you can, you can say, I really have a problem with that. Hmm. I wish I wouldn't. I mean, in the end, let's face it, you know, if somebody says something, unless you, you react to it, there's not really any harm. It's just sound waves. Mm. It's not like because somebody says something, somebody else kind of falls over death, that or something. It's just sound waves. So <clears throat> unless you react and kind of go, oh, this is terrible. <clears throat> But if you realize... I'm really by bothered by what I hear and you are kind of, you can just admit that, you know, I'm bothered by what I hear. And then can you, if you like, yeah, in this case, you say to this person says to her or his father, look, it really bothers me what you say. Then it's not even accusing or judgmental. It's like admitting a fact. It's like admitting, look, this is what happens to me when you say that. Mm. So there's no, there's no confrontation at all in that statement. Because there's no judgment. It's interesting is again, the person <clears throat> didn't put that reaction into this box called right, wrong, righteousness and thing and didn't communicate based on the, on this like theoretical box full of rights and wrong, but completely communicate out of the subjective event, mental event of saying, oh, That thing bothered me. I don't find it helpful. I didn't like that thing. And 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 I think especially with somebody like your father or somebody close to it, I think they might be more open to pay heed to how they affect you than they are more in, interested in hearing what they did wrong based on some theoretical right-wrong right, system that hasn't really been established yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm actually often thinking... I mean, in our Buddhist tradition, we believe the Buddha... I mean, there are certain things around reality and what's happening where we say only a fully enlightened Buddha can comprehend everything in terms of understanding karma, how karma exactly works. It's like you have to be fully enlightened to get it. So, and actually, of course, we have no direct experience how that would be, but it is said that basically 
I mean, also if you look at the teachings, which kind of describe what we should strive for in terms of perceiving reality, it's such a huge um, jump from how we are now. So I often think if a Buddha kind of looks at how we are, this kind of little bit of difference that we have and which we call about kind of, you know, you're a racist, I'm not a racist, I'm much better than you. In the big scheme of things, you know, kind of, it's actually totally irrelevant. It's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, a giant looking at two small children uh, talking about who is one inch taller than the yeah, other. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you're very similar. It's like, touch we are so far away mm. from actually an enlightenment or the state of enlightenment and how we would perceive reality from that state. So you could say that we are kind of, in terms of our potential, we, we, are, we have realized on maybe 1%, let's say, just a number. Yeah. And whether I have 1% and you have 1.1. Yeah, 1.01. 1.01. Like, I am so much better than you. <laughs> I have 1.01%. It's, I mean, of course we have to kind of take the 1.01% and then mm. hope we get to 1.0.2% at some point. That's how progress is made. There's no way to jump. But also it's not very clear how 1.2% looks like. Sometimes we think, even I find myself thinking that a stepping stone to enlightenment, that I know what they are like, well, yeah, sure, Robert is not enlightened and I'm not enlightened. But sure, if he was a little bit like, more like I wanted him to be, he would be closer to enlightenment. Like, and, but maybe not. Because enlightenment is so far away from all of this that maybe, no, maybe it's just another concept that I would like him to adhere to. And yeah, maybe would make my life a bit easier, but in terms of him becoming enlightened, wouldn't make any difference. If, if you know what I mean. It's like, it's not clear that um, in order to be on the path towards you know, fulfilling your full potential. Uh, you, we all go through the same steps and develop our ordinary mind in the same way or develop our opinions in the same way. Actually, it's one of the interesting things about being uh, also a, a Buddhist and being part of a Buddhist community is that, yes, the vast majority of people seem to come from a similar background that I come from in terms of... Um, worldly views and political views and stuff like that you would rather they are rather rather liberal than conservative but you know in our in our sangha in our be. group there's everything yes. and sometimes you would find yourself talking to people that you would normally not talk to because maybe in in, in real life you would avoid them yeah but now yeah. they are your friends they are your family somehow and you i have to grapple with the fact that they have different views and then yeah i mean you're going for something which is so much bigger than Be, this, yeah. these little differences that we have between ourselves. So it's kind of laughable. Mm. And to make a big deal out of it. And then, of course, you could even go, I mean, that's what, what also Buddhists do. I mean, Buddhists are definitely not enlightened. Many, <laughs> at least <laughs> many we know. And then you kind of, yeah, you touch each other, kind of, how can you behave like this? You're supposed to be a Buddhist. Ah, that's know. the best part, yeah. Um, where's your practice and so where's your compassion where's your patience I think the only reason why I managed to kind of survive in a Buddhist environment over the years is because I from the from the get go I I didn't see people as being better than anybody outside of a non-Buddhist world I always thought 
we come from the same um, swamp, right? We have all, all of us have the same ingrained kind of, you know, flaws and great things. And uh, whether we decided to adhere to a certain group or a certain, we hope to reach a certain aim at some point in these or in future lives doesn't make us automatically better or worse. So I thought I will find the same amount of people I like, people I don't like, attitudes I love, attitudes I find appalling here. And and I've seen people running away, you know, from the whole possibility of sharing this path with other mm -hmm. people because they found one person they didn't agree with. And that's a little bit missing the point. Yeah, it's a bit sad. It's sad because it's has so much expectation on people that if you look our life, yeah, sure, we try from time to time to practice a little more. We try to expose ourselves to brighter ideas and ways to get our mind a little bit uh, under control. But again, we are like at the very, 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 very beginning of this process and we have way more experiences being what we would call a samsaric being, which is basically somebody completely immersed in, um, yeah, worldly matters and and yeah, and having a habit of and doing that. Of, yeah. Or if you believe in rebirth, which you might as a Buddhist, for kind of thousands of lifetimes or millions of lifetimes. Yeah. And if you have ever tried to break a habit, I mean, anybody who's tried quitting smoking knows how hard it is to break a habit. And I mean, that's like. You might have been smoking for 10 years and you're trying to stop that and it's so hard. Now imagine you've been smoking for 10 million years. This is the interesting kind of basis of quite a lot of the, of the, of the I think, of the teaching and the understanding of the path that I think it's helpful sometimes to go back to basics and try to understand that and it's similar to what we just said before, that what we consider normal is just something we are used to. Yes what we consider reality is something we are used to see in a certain way and has nothing to do to whether that's correspond to reality or not. And, and some of the habits we're talking about are very easy to understand and explain are very exterior and has a lot to do with grasping at yourself and wanting to defend yourself at any cost. But then the closer you go, the, the closer you try to get to this famous non-conceptual way of seeing things, the more they become subtle and you, it's even difficult to understand what exactly we're trying to change. Yeah. What is it exactly at the very fundamental level that we are trying to shift? Because it's not just like, okay, stop doing this and do this instead. That's difficult to do, but easy to understand. And, you know, maybe you manage to stop smoking, stop beating yourself, you know, uh, be more compassionate and do all these nice things. But then, then you try to do those things while not believing in the true existence of yourself, the thing you're doing and the object you're trying to do this compassionate act towards. And what does that mean? Yeah. And that's the that's where the philosophy helps. Yeah, I mean, Buddhism, actually Buddhist teachings can be quite confusing in that aspect because, okay, you have all these concepts right now. And then some Buddhist teachings like Lojon come and say, your concepts are terrible. I'll give you a new set of concepts. Do this one now. You know, kind of, you actually... Turn it around. Turn it around. Mm -hmm. You try to kind of put something else in there to kind of erase what you had before. And then the other teachings would tell you actually no concepts at all. Yeah, the other don't, one is don't, just don't, as bad. Don't, do, don't, do, don't develop new habits, just no habits at all. 
And yeah, you need kind of both because to go from habits to no habits, that's pretty tough. So we reached the point of uh, where our concept of slowly dissolving is also in like late in the yeah, evening. Yeah, I think our conversation too. And we would like to say goodbye to everybody. It was great yeah, to start thank again. Thank you very much. Please come back. Let us know what you think about our rambling. Yeah. We are on Twitter, Safe Space 2012. And we do have a Tumblr site, which is something, something, safespace.tumblr.com, I believe. I have to check. Mm. And of course, we are on, on iTunes. Safe, yeah. safe space just search under the podcast section for safe space and you'll find us and see you in uh, in two weeks we're going to try to get back the rhythm of yeah. two weeks <clears throat> so we hope to record another podcast soon so thank you very much bye bye